We are Christians. And we all know how important God is. We all respect God and pray every time before the game and after the game. We praise God for what he's done for us. Those words spoken by team captain John Mensa of Ghana's World Cup soccer team. And I don't know if you are aware of the story about Ghana's soccer team. It's an encouraging, encouraging story about a team of players, all of them are believers, and, and they sing and pray before their games, they sing and pray together at halftime, they sing and pray together after the game, win or lose. They sing at practice, they sing in the hotel, they sing and pray and sing and pray and sing and pray. And, you know, there they are. They're at the field, holding hands there in a circle as they're getting ready to play. Your brothers in Christ doing this. And I read about their story, and I, I just thought how wonderful that is. And then I just began to, you know, imagine what would that be, what would that be like in the NFL? What would that be like for the Chicago Bears to take midfield, all of them, and just hold hands and sing and pray? Wow. Whoa, what would that be like for other football teams? What would that be like for the New York Jets? Huh? And especially the head coach of the New York Jets. We know that he knows the name of Jesus, but maybe not like this. <laughs> it's awesome. That's what it is. And at the same time, though, it created kind of a dilemma, didn't it, in World Cup? You know, especially when Ghana played the United States. Who do you root for? Do you root for your brothers in Christ or your countrymen? And I'm not saying that none of the American players on the soccer team are Christian, but, you know, work with me here. Follow along. Think about it. Think about it. I mean, who do I root for? It's a good question because it's a question about our primary identity. It's a question about our allegiance to what our primary identity is. And it's a question that I want us to consider in light of this September topical series, Skin Deep, Faith and Race in the Church. Now, as I was preparing for this series and talking about this series, I was asked by several people, Randy, why are you doing this? Oh, okay, what's your, what's your, you know, kind of, uh, almost an arched eyebrow, but not quite. What's your angle here? What's your agenda? What is it? Why are you doing this series? And, and here's why we're doing this series. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them in a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
And hear Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and, uh, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church family, That is our destiny. That's our reason for being. This is why we exist. This is why you go to work tomorrow morning. It is. This is why we marry and have children. This is why we we work and serve that, that we might one day be part of a multinational multiracial, multi-ethnic community of redeemed believers that when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory and restores and remakes all things in the new heavens and the new earth, that with new bodies, our racial distinctions will not dissolve or fade or be suppressed. It won't. And that our primary distinctive, our primary identity, our primary source of significance in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies reigning forever will not be the color of our skin. Our primary distinctive will be that of being in Christ. In Christ. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's why in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 it says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is to say that when we enter and when we exit the symbolic waters of of baptism which which demonstrate this, this graphic drama of decision that because of Jesus Christ... He has made us into a new race. And the Apostle Paul says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That, that in, in the likeness of the mystery of the Trinity, where there is perfect diversity and perfect unity. That is what we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. How thrilling. That's our destiny. Being in Christ and belonging to Christ and being made into a kingdom of priests by Christ. Church family, this reality, this reality transforms everything about how I think and feel and act right now. Right now. Because God's will for us is to, God's will for my life and our life is for me to become what he already says I am. And therefore, this reality transforms everything. 
everything about how I think and feel and act regarding any issue whatsoever, including issues regarding race and racial distinctions and racial problems. Being in Christ becomes the lens through which we interpret the world, including issues in the world like race and race relations. Is this not why 2 Corinthians 5, 16 says, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one. Uh, uh, literally, literally in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Being in Christ changes everything. Therefore, church family, the degree to which we think and speak and act in Christ, the degree to which we become skilled believers and the degree to which we become skilled as a congregation, and by skill I mean, I mean it takes drills, it takes practice, it takes two-a-days, spring training and fall training and Training, training, training the degree to which we become individually skilled and skilled as a congregation regarding the challenges and tensions and struggles and opportunities of racial unity in our country and our community and our church community. The more skilled we are, then the more effective we will be at capturing and killing the false myths beliefs and opinions about faith and race in the church and kill them we must. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Then Paul says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what we're to be about. What arguments? What lofty opinions? What myths? Well, I want us to... I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about uh, three myths. Three myths about faith and race in the church, which were uh, brought about and discussed in a focus group that I had in July before I left on a study break. And our focus group of about 15 consisted of mature believers uh, from diverse backgrounds and National backgrounds in our congregation, African-American, Korean-American, Hispanic, Anglo, Puerto Rican, single, married, male, female, newer to Windsor Road, a long-timer at Windsor Road. And we talked about many myths. Uh, I have time to discuss three of them this morning. And the first is this. Uh, It was alluded to in our video Uh, It's uh, what I call the elephant in the room myth. Uh, The the myth that racial issues are just too hard to talk about, you know? That it's just too volatile. Randy, what are you doing? 
what's going on here? You're, you're, you're messing with me here. This is just too tense. Just, just leave it alone. Okay, just leave the elephant alone. Better not to bring it up, and that way the room won't get messed up. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, there's some truth to this myth. Um, because it is hard. And it is a struggle. And quite frankly, it's impossible without Christ. Because our world wants to impose its, its own template and its own standard to solving the difficulties of race and racial prejudice. Too often we feel too afraid to talk about it lest we say something wrong or we you know, try to say the right thing the wrong way. And in an age of eight-second sound bites and the new media, I mean, who wouldn't be afraid? Do you not remember the story this summer about Shirley Sherrod, who was an employee for the USDA, who uh, was misrepresented and then prematurely judged Her 45-minute speech uh, uh, concerning the powerful helping the powerless was cut down into about a two, two two-and-a-half-minute internet video clip making her look like a race game-playing government bully. And she was misrepresented by uh, one group of folk, and she was uh, prematurely judged by another group of folk. And so, I mean, who wants to to risk that? Huh? Who wants, to ri- who wants to risk misrepresentation followed by overreaction? <laughs> and so, you know, and, and this is how the world operates. Because the, world, the world's default system is, is uh, both, you know, moral and cultural relativism and legalism. It is. The world wants to say, well, now you have your truth, I have my truth, and, and a sort of uh, uh, mushy relativism where, you know, everyone's okay, and let's not get too excited about your ethnic distinctions lest you offend someone else, and so you end up in, in a, with a world where nobody says something that would upset anyone, and, and then, but then if someone does maybe happen to take the world at its word by saying, okay, I'm going to go ahead and speak up and say what I, then the world then jumps over to, to becoming a, a, a PC Legalist. And what makes it so silly is that the world wants to start with itself. The world wants to start for, and discuss this issue from the ground up. The world wants to begin from the throne of humanity. And I can assure you, brothers and sisters, that when our Father God approaches the issue of race and race relations, he does not start with the world. He starts with himself. He starts from heaven. And the king insists that racial friction is not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. The starting point is realizing and owning and recognizing that all have sinned and all fall short of God's standard. The issue is not skin, it is sin. Which is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, all of us also also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature's object of wrath. Paul is saying the truth. No one is good before God. No one. In fact, it's so bad no one can save themselves. 
Romans 8, 7 and 8 tell us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're morally unable to please God apart from Christ. Now, I can do a lot. I can read and write and pursue undergraduate and graduate degrees at a Big Ten university, and I might have an original contribution to the knowledge pool, but I cannot please God. And that leaves me spiritually dead. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins. If you were a Christian, it means if you're a Christian, it means that Jesus Christ has raised you from the dead. I mean, Darren Hackey led worship like a dead man who's come back to life. Huh? Well, he did not do that. And you did not do that. Jesus Christ did that. And our community is populated with thousands who are dead. And when it comes to racial harmony, the gospel obliterates the myth and the lofty arguments by arguing that no matter what race you are, you are equally dead without Christ. Listen. Hell is as racially diverse as heaven. That's what Romans 2.9 says. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Whites are dead. Blacks are dead. Asians, Latino. We're dead. I mean, the gospel asserts the colossal universal equality of deadness. Every ethnicity will populate hell because all have sinned. All are dying of the same disease. What elephant? What elephant? Why shouldn't we talk about this? I mean, without Christ, we are on Titanic. And so when we talk, when we talk, when I talk, when I come to the table, it's just wise to be humble. I speak in humility. I, I, I talk as one who without Jesus Christ, I'm as dead as the most evil person. I, I, I'm as dead as the most hardened terrorist. I'm as dead as the most jail-hardened pedophile. Folks, dead is dead. And, and you see, see, part of what gets shattered here is the myth that, you know, that I don't have as much to be as sorry about as someone else. And James chapter 2, verse 10, slays that. James chapter 2, verse 10 reminds us that, that everyone comes to the table as a lawbreaker. As a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And so because of the solidarity of hell-bound deadness, I should be less proud and more gracious to others because no ethnic group has any edge at all whatsoever. So, you know, what elephant? 
All right? The ground is level at the cross. Well, that's the first myth. The elephant in the room myth. The gospel just slays that. There's another myth, and, and uh, it kind of gets alluded to here when we think about um, James 2.10 and law-breaking. And the myth goes something like this. You know, if I embrace the gospel, will I just automatically be immune from racial struggles? Hmm? We, we heard that a little bit on our video. Some people think that's the case. And, and, and some people dismiss Christianity. They say, well, I'm not going to believe in a faith where its adherents practice racism or other hypocritical behaviors. I mean, it's just so inconsistent, so inconsistent. Well, well, you know what? They're right. It is inconsistent. It is hypocritical, especially when it shows up in the lives of leaders. And I'm thinking about Galatians chapter 2 in the city of Antioch. And how the Apostle Paul had to confront the Apostle Peter (laughs) over Peter's inconsistent behavior. Peter had been sharing table fellowship uh, with uh, racially different Christians. Uh, Peter from a Hebrew ethnicity. And he was uh, dining, eating what was put before him uh, at the table of uh, non-Hebrew ethnic Christians and, and, and enjoying table fellowship with them until some other Hebrew Christians showed up in town and came to church. And then Peter kind of began to withdraw. And the apostle Paul saw this and publicly, publicly confronted. Now, can you imagine that in the first church? Huh? I mean, the, the, the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter, uh, I, I, uh, I heard about a book one time called Great Church Fights. And wow, I mean, I mean th- there it is, right? I mean, I mean can, can you imagine two of our elders, you know? You know, you know Elder Dan Pack here and then Elder Kevin Jackson coming up and, and you know, just, wow, having a, having a, in front of everybody, having kind of a, some sort of a smackdown. Wow, that would be, let's get the popcorn. Well, I mean, this, <laughs> these aren't elders, these are apostles, these are apostles. Galatians 2.14 says, Paul's writing, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, I smell ham on your breath. Now, if an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this was after the resurrection and after the ascension and after Pentecost, if someone like Peter has the capability of showing inconsistency, then, well, someone like me, me, I bet I could do it better than Peter. But I want you to notice how Paul challenged Peter. 
What's he say to him? What's, what's he say in verse 14? He doesn't say, Peter, you're breaking the no racism law. Well, yeah, we, we know that, of course. But, but see, that's not the best way to think. Paul asks, neither what is, Paul asks neither what's the moral way to act, nor does he say, we don't need to order our steps at all. Well, what does he say? He says, Peter, what is in line with the truth of the gospel? Wasn't keeping in line with the truth of the gospel. Um, um, some versions put it this way. He was not keeping in step with the gospel. That phrase, walking in line or keeping in step. It's our word, orthopedics. Orthopedics. What's in line toward the gospel? How, how should one relate to Christians of any ethnicity when one's primary identity is Jesus? There it is. And so you see, what we learn in Galatians is that the gospel needs to continually be thought out in every area of our lives to keep us from moving into some sort of habitual moralism or individualistic directions. We need, we need to bring everything in line with the truth of the gospel. And so, so when... When our Christianity, when our Christian faith shows itself to be inconsistent, it's, it's because we haven't been thinking through the deep implications of the gospel. We're not using the gospel in every part of our lives. And let me just say that if you're struggling with Christianity, if you're here this morning and uh, you would not consider yourself to be a Christian. And, and, and in fact, you're frustrated with Christians because of their racist behavior. I want you to please notice what's going on here in the Bible. <laughs> Scripture itself calls Christians to truer Christianity. Scripture is the first to call a foul on Christians and Christian leaders. You see that? There's no, try, there's no masking over anything. The Bible shows leaders what it is, warts and all. So, so the solution to racism in Christians is not less Christianity, but truer Christianity. And it makes as much sense to reject Christianity because Christians behave poorly as it does to reject hospitals and medicines because of malpractice and unethical medical practices. The, the solution is not fewer hospitals and doctors. The solution is for hospitals and doctors to act with care and integrity. And that's the way it needs to be with us. I love what G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian who lived 100 years ago. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Well, that's myth number two. So let's try Christianity. Let's listen to the king. And, and this, this leads me to our third myth. Um, and I'll just tell you what the focus group said. Uh, Randy, they said, and I've got this in quotes, don't make diversity the main thing. Keep Christ the center of all things. We don't want to lose the Christ-centered focus by trying to please everyone. See, do, do you hear what the myth is? The third myth? The, 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 the third myth is the myth that my ethnicity matters most. That's, that's the myth. And quite frankly, our focus group, uh, I was hearing 
concern from them about us perhaps sliding into a you know, kind of a social gospel style of church where we do acts of compassion and mercy, but we neglect to call people to the most important person in the universe, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And I assure you that won't happen here. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He once wrote, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, What's your earthly dearest? What is that? Is it your ethnicity? Is it your uh, profession? Is it your family? Is it your spouse? Your children? Your home? Your stuff? Your education? What's your earthly dearest? Your earthly dearest. When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. Then he says this, Lewis says, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. You see, the best way, the only way to increase my capacity to celebrate my ethnicity or my national heritage or you fill in the blank, the best way is to increase my love for Jesus Christ because we need more than melanin to make it to heaven. We need Jesus He matters the most because he gave up the most. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He is the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. He gave his blood. Last night, Sarah uh, asked me, she said, well, okay, Randy, what's your, what's your sermon in a sentence? Huh? What's your sermon in a sentence? All right, what's the, what's the sermon? If you only had a match, matchbook, you'd, you'd just have to scribble it down. What is it? And she, she always asked that. Um, here it is. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. Here it is. When it comes to race relations, it's not the blood in my veins that matters. It's the blood in Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what the word says. Jesus, the good shepherd, loved his church. He laid down his life for the sheep. And he said in John 10, 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock One shepherd. And you cannot have a healthy flock when the sheep hate each other. You can't. Especially when the shepherd died for them. And God expects more praise and more glory from a multiracial flock than a uniracial flock. And he died on a cross so that might happen. You, you ransomed for us by your blood. You ransomed from every nation and language and tongue and tribe by your blood. It was costly for Jesus to do this. And if it was costly for Jesus, you know what? It's going to be costly for you. 
and you, you make efforts at racial reconciliation, you know, prepare to be scrutinized. Prepare for people to say, now why do you really want to do this? Huh? Do you think that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, when Jesus was bleeding to death on the cross, do you think they just suddenly have an, had an epiphany and said, what have we done? What did, they, what did they do? They mocked him. They insulted him. They spit on him. They cursed him to his death. If they did that to him, what should we expect? And that, that means even the most well-intentioned series from a pulpit could be scrutinized. I mean, well, think about it. Who gets it right when dealing with racial harmony? Is there, have you heard a perfect sermon series on faith and race in the church? I have not. And after this series is over, I still will not have heard a perfect series on faith and race in the church. And, and it's quite possible that after this series, some might think, you know, why didn't he say this? Or you know, why did he leave that out? Or why could he, you know, and, and it's just, <sighs> you know. And it's easy to want to quit. I mean, how many of you have sat at the table of racial negotiation and you just, you just finally, you say, I'm done, you know. I'm done. These people are just too hard to please. And what we need to know, church family, is that the most important person to please in race relations, the most important person to please in race relations is not the person of another race. The most important person to please is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He matters most. It's not the blood in my veins that matters. It's the blood in Christ's. Well, last year, the movie Invictus tells the story about how Nelson Mandela, um, who was portrayed by Morgan Freeman, how Nelson Mandela, in his first term as the president of South Africa, how he showed unconditional enthusiasm for the nation's mostly white rugby team in an effort to bring about reconciliation in apartheid toward land. There's a scene early in the film that's a really good scene. I want you to see it here in just a moment. And what we learn is that Mandela's efforts at racial reconciliation did not stop with the rugby team. He, he sought opportunities for reconciliation at every turn. Uh, including the way he put together his security team. We need more men. Did you talk to Brenda about it? Yes, yesterday. Ah, that must be Jason with the schedule. Come in, beautiful. What's this? Mr. Jason Chabalala. That's me. Am I under arrest? Captain Fader and team reporting for duty, sir. What duty? With a presidential bodyguard. We've been assigned to this office. Here are our orders. The special branch, right? 
You'll see that they've been signed. Well, I don't care if they are signed. Just wait here. Sorry to disturb you, sir. You look agitated, Jason. Well, that's because there are four special branch cops in my office. Oh, what did you do? Nothing. But they say they are the presidential bodyguards and they have orders signed by you. Ah, yes, ah, yes. Well, uh, these men are special trained by SAS. They have lots of experience. They protected the clerk. Yes, sir, but it doesn't mean that they have to come. You asked for more men, didn't you? Yes, sir. I asked... Um... When people see me in public, they see my bodyguards. You represent me directly. The Rainbow Nation starts here. Reconciliation starts here. Reconciliation, sir? Yes, reconciliation, Jason. Comrade President, not long ago, these guys tried to kill us. Maybe even these four guys in my office tried and often succeeded. Yes, I know. Forgiveness starts here, too. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Please, Jason. Try. Sorry to disturb you, sir. Forgiveness starts here. And reconciliation starts here. Church, the gospel is the answer to all these myths. I mean, we could talk about ten other myths, but the answer is still going to be the same. The answer to every question is Jesus. And what would our community see if they looked at the Windsor Road community and they saw love and reconciliation and unity between brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, as the world had never seen before, they find, they find a church family that is more related to one another from other nations and ethnicities than to, than to non-Christians of their own nation and even family. How attractive would that be? It's transformational. I want that. And so grace starts here. Love starts here. Forgiveness starts here. Brought about by the blood of the King, whom we remember in communion. Each week, we share a time of holy communion where the bread and the juice are passed to believers. And you know what Jesus said. This represents my body. This represents my blood. This represents me. And we share in it and take joy in it. And then, having gathered, we then scatter and we go out to our neighborhoods and we go out 
to our offices and to our families, and we go out into the world. And it is at that point that we become communion to the world. We become the ones who are broken. We become the ones whose blood is spilled because of the king. Jesus says, when you leave, you are the loaf and you are the cup. Because Jesus looks at each of us directly and he says, you represent me directly. It's not the blood in your veins. It's the blood in Christ's. Amen.